attaching those two things together is just to say that the taste of wine was still on their lips as they left the Last Supper, as they, as they sang that hymn and went out to walk from that building where they had met past the temple to the Garden of Gethsemane, the taste of wine was still on their lips as Jesus then goes in to, to teach and to say what we're going to look at today. So what we've been doing for the last um, six weeks, I guess, now is a series entitled, Who Do I Say That I Am? And the whole purpose and design of the series is that we're looking at what Jesus says about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine is where we started last week and continue in this week. So we want to know what what does Jesus actually tell us about himself and about his character. He's mimicking something that Yahweh did, that God himself did in the Old Testament to reveal his character to his people. And if there's one thing that will bring people stability and peace at a time like this, it is to get their gaze completely and exclusively focused on Jesus. And just to recap, last week, last week made the point that God wants fruit. Now, what that means is he wants his people to live in a way that shows the world what his character is like. We read in Isaiah 5 of God describing the nation of Israel as a vineyard. And he says about how he prepared the ground for them and he built a watchtower and a wine press and he did everything that he could have done. And he planted this vine, this people Israel in the land with the expectation that they would bear fruit, the expectation that his character would be shown to the world through how that people lived. But when he came to the vine looking for grapes, all he found was bad grapes. He did not get the good fruit that he wanted. He wanted justice and he wanted righteousness and he found bloodshed. So Jesus now in John chapter 15 is on his way from the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will pray and where he will be arrested and taken for trial and executed the following day. He literally has possibly about 12 hours left of before his crucifixion. He's in his last opportunities with his disciples prior to the crucifixion to teach them and to encourage them. And as he walks from the upper room past the temple with a taste of wine still on his lips, and they walk past that golden vine that was in the temple with golden bunches of grapes hanging from it to represent Israel and the fruit that God wanted, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, I am the true vine. And what he is saying is, I am the authentic Israel. I am the representation of God and God's character to the world. It's me. He is replacing Israel and he is centering what it means to be the people of God is now utterly centered on whether or not people are connected to him. He's the vine from which life flows we are the branches and God wants fruit. God is the, <clears throat> he's the gardener uh, and he wants the branches to bear fruit. And last week we started looking at some of God's gardening tips. Uh, if God took over Gardener's World for the week and talked about vines, what would he talk about? And the first one we saw last week was the, the concept of the vine being lifted up out of the dirt and cleaned and tied up that it would bear fruit. 
So I've got two more for you today, hopefully two more today. We'll see how time goes. It might only be one. But the second one, let's, let's read some verses from, from John 15. Uh, I'm going to read from verse 1 to maybe about verse 12. And I want you to, to listen out for a word that occurs over and over again. And we'll get to a little bit later on, hopefully. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So tip number one last week was, was lifting up. Tip number two from God's vine dressing um, book of, of, uh, of tactics is in verse two, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, in gardening terms, just in case gardening's not your thing, uh, pruning is defined as cutting away dead or overgrown branches or stems, especially to encourage new growth. Cutting away dead or overgrown branches or stems, especially to encourage new growth. And in the world of being a Christian, pruning then is difficult, painful, pressured situations that God uses in our lives, both individually and as a community, as churches, to produce more fruit and more growth. Difficult times. Pruning, let me just tell you right from the outset, pruning is not nice. Nobody likes pruning. Nobody really wants to be pruned. Um, Sometimes at the end of a church service or of a, a, a worship event or something like that, there might be an invitation for people to come for prayer. And if you say, uh, if, if, if you would like healing, if you want to come forward and we'll pray for God to heal you, then people will come forward. And if you say, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and we, you want us to pray with you that God will fill you with his Holy Spirit, people will come forward. And if you say we want, if you if you want to come up and receive prayer and see if the Holy Spirit reveals anything prophetic for your life, 
people will come forward. If you stand up and say, who wants pruned? Nobody's moving, right? Because nobody's going to be tripping over themselves, running to the front of the church saying, me, me, I want pruned. Pruning hurts. Pruning involves a knife. It involves cutting. It involves unpleasant experiences. And it just seems wrong sometimes. In a gardening context, if you have a, a shrub or a fruit tree or something that is, is growing and has grown well, to then come along with, with a pair of secateurs or a knife or loppers or whatever and, and cut bits off it just seems wrong. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive. You, you look at it and you think it's going really well. We'll let it keep going. But no, you've got to cut back. You've got to cut back. And, and your, your instinct is surely the more shoots that are there, the more growth there'll be and the more fruit there'll be. But it doesn't work like that. Too many shoots can, can be harmful to a plant and can actually limit its ability to bear good fruit. Something you need to know about pruning, just a sort of a pruning myth to get to one side here. Pruning is not punishment. Right? You've got to take that on board. Pruning is not punishment. Sometimes when we go through difficult experiences in life as followers of God, we can default to believing a lie that somehow we have not pleased God and that he is therefore punishing us. That is utterly unbiblical. The origin of that thinking is utterly satanic. It really is. When we get into times of difficulty and start to think, God is angry with me and that's why this is happening. That is not true. I want you to understand that pruning is not punishment. If you're going through a difficult season in your life right now and you're feeling the cutting of the knife, that does not mean that you have displeased God. Pruning is not punishment. Jesus never sinned, yet Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit for 40 days to be tested, and the devil tempted him. He never sinned, but he went through that season of challenge and pressure and trial. You see, he says in verse 2, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Reading that backwards, he prunes the branches that bear fruit. If he is pruning you, if he's pruning me, if he's pruning a church, it is because fruit is being born. It's almost like the pruning itself is a validation that what you're doing is good, that you are producing fruit, and that he wants you to produce more fruit, and hence he comes in with a pruner's knife. So please get out of your thinking the idea that painful circumstances are punishment from God. They are not. Every branch that bears fruit is pruned to bear more fruit. If you're being pruned, it's an indication you are bearing fruit and you should not worry about it. If you're not being pruned and if life is a bed of roses all the time, then you maybe should be a little bit more concerned because there's no pruning going on. Right? So the lack of pruning is more of a worry than, than pruning itself. Pruning removes dead wood. All right? If you've got a branch and a vine and there are, uh, there are shoots coming off it that have died and that are just getting in the way, pruning removes those. 
Pruning takes away excess growth. If, if plants, if vines and fruit bushes are just left to themselves, they'll just put up loads of shoots. They all get twisted in among each other. It is not healthy for the plant. Pruning allows more light to get in there. The plant needs the energy from the sun in order to produce fruit. And pruning removes the dead wood that is blocking out the light. Pruning also removes um, the dead wood that is blocking out the airflow through the plant. Plant needs to have fresh air moving through it. If it's all clogged up with dead wood and overgrown shoots, the air does not move through it and then it is prone to disease. You need to have a, a, an opening in a plant. You, gardeners say that when you're pruning an apple tree, a pigeon should be able to fly through it. It needs to be open in its, in its structure. I'd be quite happy for the pigeon to fly into it and bang its head off the middle of it because I don't like them. But apparently you need to have air and you need to have light in among that bush in order for fruit to come. Dead wood doesn't bear fruit. It gets in the way. And when God comes in with a pruner's knife, he is taking away the things that are hindering us from bearing fruit and showing the character of God. Things that are useless. Things that maybe once were good but they now have run their course. Henry Cloud writes a book and has a concept called Necessary Endings. The need sometimes to to close the door on things and say that has passed. It is no longer fruitful. It maybe was fruitful five years ago, whatever. It's no longer fruitful and it needs to end. It's dead wood. It needs to be removed. So pruning removes that dead wood that's blocking out light, blocking out air gets rid of those things in our lives that are causing us to be unfruitful. And pruning stimulates new growth. Now, be honest with me. How much does your faith grow when life is a bed of roses? If life has ever been a bed of roses. But if there are no trials, there are no difficulties, everything is absolutely as perfect as you could want it to be, There's no sickness. There's no tension anywhere in the workplace. There's no concerns about anything. In those moments, how much does your faith grow? Mine doesn't grow very much at those times. My faith grows when the pressure's on. My prayer life grows and deepens when the pressure's on. When there are things happening that are out of my control, that are unpleasant, that are painful, when there's suffering, whether that's physical or emotional or spiritual or whatever the source may be, whenever we are in difficult situations, that is when we usually grow spiritually. Certainly that's my experience and I would say it's probably your experience as well. Does the character of Jesus get formed in us more when life is a bed of roses? Or does it get formed in us more when, frankly, the manure of the world is all over us? Where does the growth happen? Where does the Christ-likeness happen? It happens in the places of pressure. Pressure has this ability to expose what's in your heart. Pruning and, and, and pain and suffering and difficulty exposes what's in the heart. There's a, a, a biblical counselor called David Paulison who uses an illustration of a water bottle. He opens the water bottle in front of his students and he starts to shake the water bottle and he crushes it and he twists it and he does all sorts of stuff with the water bottle and of course the water comes out all over the floor. And then he will say to his students, 
Why is there water all over the floor? And they say back to him, because you shook the bottle. And he says, no, the water is all over the floor because there was water in the bottle. My shaking just brought out what was already there. My twisting and crushing just brought out what was already there. I'm not responsible for the water. The water was in the bottle. The pressure I've put on has just caused what was inside to come out. And sometimes in our lives, those difficult situations, those times of pruning and pain can expose what's in our hearts and bring it out to be dealt with by the Holy Spirit. It's actually amazing to see the growth in a plant once you have pruned it. Even though that moment of cutting feels counterintuitive and it feels wrong, to go back to that plant six months later and see how it has responded. Interestingly, wherever the cuts are made, that's usually where the new shoots come from. It's phenomenal how God has written into creation these principles. If we don't allow the cutting of the pruner's knife, there'll be no new shoots, there'll be no new growth, and there'll not be the fruit that the gardener wants. I wonder, is the church being pruned in lockdown? And our our lives being pruned in lockdown? What, What is there about how we do church that God would say, listen, let me cut that away. That is dead wood. What are the things that use up resources? What are the things that block out the light, that get tangled and get into a mess? So many Christians are exhausted. And why are they exhausted? They're exhausted because of church, because there's so many tangled shoots of dead wood that need to be cut away to allow the air and the light to get in. What is it about how we do church that God might want to cut away? What is it that he would look at and say, listen, that's dead wood. A year ago, that was a good thing. It's now dead wood. Cut it off. Take it away because I want to bring forth fruit and new shoots. It's blocking the light. About two or three weeks into lockdown, I said to Linda one day, we cannot go back to living the way we lived before this. We, we just can't go back to a lifestyle where if our whole family is in the house together one night a week, that is like some sort of triumphant moment. That's not good enough. We can't go back to having our lives just clogged up with dead wood that has us constantly on the move, weary, lacking air, lacking light, lacking fruit. We have got to allow God to prune us in these days. Those of you that know me will know one of my favorite movies is It's a Wonderful Life. Um, It's seen as a a Christmas movie, but it's just the final scene that's at Christmas. You have my permission to watch it all year round. Uh, And in It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey has a conversation with an angel, and the angel says to him, you've been given a great gift, George, uh, a chance to see what the world would be like without you. And what what George Bailey gets to see is what his hometown and all the people that he knows, how their lives would be different if he had never lived. It's a phenomenally smart and effective little plot. And I think maybe at this time, we've been given a glimpse, we've been given a chance to see a little bit of what life would be like if all of the clutter was just suddenly paused. All of the running, all of the activities all of the busyness, suddenly pause. And you've got this gift, this moment to have a look at what would life be like 
without all of these things that we run ourselves ragged doing? What needs to be pruned away? Church planting can feel like a constant pruning, cut after cut after cut after cut. And just when you're starting to see growth, a pandemic comes and the doors are closed and you literally have your hands in your head saying, really, now, of all times, now. But growth comes after the pruning and fruit comes after the pruning. Pruning happens frequently in winter. Which is just great because the plant is already freezing cold. It's dark. There's a distinct lack of light and energy. Uh, It's wet. And the plant is just basically sitting there trying to survive the winter. And along comes the gardener with his knife. And you're just like, seriously, I'm already cold. If plants could talk, I'm already cold and I'm already wet. And it's dark. And it's like... You really, you're going to start cutting away now the growth that I worked on last year? Are you going to remove that? And the gardener says yes. And I can imagine if the gardener talks to the plant, which some might do, the, the gardener would say to the plant, listen, <clears throat> I know you're cold, and I know you're wet, and I know it's dark, but spring will come. Spring will come. I have got to do the cutting now. So that when spring comes, those new shoots come forth. And then summer will come. And summer will bring heat. And those new shoots will grow more and start to bear fruit. And then harvest will come. And there will be more fruit than there ever has been before. You need to trust me. You need to trust my knife. I'm sure you have experienced times, maybe are experiencing a time, where there's a whole lot of circumstances that are making life difficult. It's cold and it's dark, and it's wet. And then there's another cut, and you're like, I can't take any more cuts. (laughs) Trust the gardener. Trust the gardener that spring will come. Whenever you plant a fruit bush, you obviously handle it. You've got to hold the thing and set it down into the ground. And whenever you harvest the fruit from the fruit bush, you handle it to a certain extent. But one of the most beautiful things in this illustration of pruning is that the gardener is never closer and more intimately connected with the fruit bush than when he is pruning it. When he's pruning it, he's looking over every branch, every shoot, every spur, every part of it. He's going around it and he's looking for the dead wood. He's looking for the things that are diseased. He is intimately close to it. He maybe has his head in the middle of it, you know, pulling away things and cutting away. The vine dresser is never closer to the vine than when he is pruning it. And at the times in our lives when we are feeling the pain and the pressure and we are inclined to sometimes think God is distant, I want to reassure you that he is probably closer than ever holding the knife doing the pruning and stimulating the new growth. Trust him. So that is God's gardening tip number two, pruning. So we had lifting up the, the branches that are in the dirt, cleaning them off. We've got pruning, cutting away the dead wood. feels negative and it feels painful, but ultimately it is to produce more fruit. And the third one is one that's actually mentioned 11 times in the passage that I read earlier. You might have noticed the word over and over again, starting in verse 4. 
<clears throat> remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. That word remain is an absolutely cracking word in the Gospel of John. I don't actually like remain. I prefer the translation abide or dwell because it picks up on a theme that's running through John. Keep your finger in John 15 and head left to, to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, <clears throat> the first conversation that Jesus has is recorded from verse 35. The next day, John was there again, that's John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. Now, when they say, where are you staying? They're using the same word that's in John 15. And what they're saying is, where do you dwell? Where do you abide? And it's not just, <clears throat> you know, for them, it might have just been a question, where can we find you? Where's your house? Where can we come and listen to you teach? But for John, it is much more than that. He hangs it out at the start of the gospel and he comes back to it over and over again. It's woven through this whole wonderful story that he tells of Jesus. Where do you abide, Jesus? Where do you abide? Where's your dwelling place? And Jesus says to, I think it's Andrew probably that asked this question. And Jesus says to Andrew in verse 39, come and you will see Andrew wastes no time in going and telling his brother Peter to, to come and join him. And John holds this question in the background the whole way through. You've got to read the whole gospel to find the answer. And I can imagine as Jesus walks from the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane on this night, and as he walks past the vine and he's having this conversation, I can imagine at this moment he looks at Andrew and says, Abide in me and I will abide in you. Andrew, there is your answer. Where do you abide, Jesus? Where do you dwell? Where can you be found? Andrew, I dwell in you. He also says in John about how he dwells in the Father, and the Father dwells in him. But this, this notion and this, this sort of thread of, of abiding is there under the surface the whole way through the gospel. It's lovely to just follow it and just see whenever it keeps coming up to the surface. Uh, a preacher and, and writer called Gordon Smith says, is there a text that describes what it means to be a Christian any more eloquently than this one? Abide in me as I abide in you. Surely it is this that makes a Christian. If you're not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, and you want to know what, what, is, what is a Christian, there's a good definition in John 15. Someone who Jesus abides in, and they abide in him. 
an organic living relationship between the two. Let's just jump back to John 14 because I want to show you something there along these lines. At the start of John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Verse 2 says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Now, John 14, verse 2, some Bibles say, In my Father's house are many mansions. Uh, This word that we've looked at in John 15, this word for remain or abide is the Greek word meno that pops up all over John, meno. And there's a, it's a slight variation of the word that is here in 14.2. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Or in older versions, in my father's house, there are many mansions. That has caused many of us then to, to interpret that and say, well, I've got a mansion in glory. When I get to heaven, I will have a mansion. I will have a house the size of the White House, and, and I will dwell there, and that will be my mansion. I don't agree with that. I think that is us putting our sort of selfish, materialistic, greedy nature onto the text. What if you don't get a mansion in glory? What if you get a cottage? Are you going to go to the landlord and complain that all you got was a cottage? What if we are misinterpreting what the verse means? And it's not about having mansions in glory. In my father's house, there are many rooms, many menos, many dwellings, many places where he abides. In my house, there are rooms and I abide in all of those rooms. Can't do it simultaneously, obviously, but I will be found at some stage in one of those rooms. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. What if this has nothing to do with mansions of heaven? And what if it has everything to do with you and with me being rooms in the Father's house? I'm going to rattle your cage here. What if the Father's house that is comprised of many rooms is not a whole housing development of mansions in glory, but what if his dwelling is among us and within us, and I am a room in the Father's house now? And you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a room in the Father's house now. And he dwells in you now. And when Jesus says, I am going to prepare a place for you, is he telling the disciples, I'm going to the cross so that you can become a room in my Father's house where my Father and I will abide. Now, chew on that as you have your coffee this afternoon. Might initially rattle your cage a bit about your notion of a white house in glory. I don't really care for a white house in glory. But the thought that I'm a room in the Father's house, that Jesus has prepared a place for me to become a room in his house where he dwells now, that's class. Dwelling. There is a supernatural aspect to being a Christian that is so frequently underemphasized. Being a Christian is not just about believing the right things. 
It is important to believe the things that the Bible teaches. It is essential. It's not just about bearing the fruit of the character of Jesus in your life. That's essential as well. But Jesus says in in verse 4 of our chapter, Abide in me and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. There is a life-giving, living connection between the branch and the vine. Just think about it. No, you go out into your garden, if you have an apple tree, and cut the branch off the apple tree, you're not going to get any fruit. There has to be a, a flow of life from the tree into the branch to produce the fruit. It's no good if the branch is lying on the ground saying, I believe that I am the branch of an apple tree. I agree with all the principles of the apple tree. I once had apples hanging on me. That's no good if there's no flow of life from the tree into the branch. And and what you must understand about being a Christian is, it is about having the life of Jesus flowing in you and through you. It is not just that you believe the right things. Lots of people believe the right things. James writes that even the, even the demons believe and tremble. It's not just about what you believe. And it is not just about bearing fruit of, of good character, which can, can sometimes, in its worst form, descend into legalism and good living religious people. It is about the life of Jesus flowing into you and flowing through you. Nothing else offers that. No religion or no faith system or no other way of living offers that life of God actually in you. And the reason why you then bear fruit is frankly because you've almost no choice. Not that you would want any other outcome, but as you're receiving the life of Jesus into yourself, the inevitable natural organic outcome is the fruit that is produced. And being a Christian is not about working. That's not how you sum it. What is the Christian? Like working? No. Rule keeping? No. Trying really hard? No. The most beautiful word, I think, for describing the Christian life is the word abiding. I simply live in him and he lives in me and his life flows through me and fruit is born. What does it mean to abide? Well, there are certain sort of non-negotiables, I believe, that if you want to abide in the vine, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, be part of his people, there's got to be regular engagement with his word and study of it and reading of it. You can't abide in him apart from this. There's got to be prayer. There's got to be that intimate union with him. We're getting now into sort of spiritual discipline stuff. Uh, There's got to be community. Uh, I don't mean to offend you, but I might by saying that if you think that watching YouTube on a Sunday morning is, is church and that even when lockdown ends, you'll just you know, make your favorite cup of coffee and sit and watch YouTube on Sunday morning and everything will be okay, you're kidding yourself. You've got to be part of the community of faith. You've got to be part of, of, a, of a local church. You've got to be part of an expression, a family of God. Um, once, you, once you read the letters of Paul, you read Jesus, but you go on and read the letters of Paul as well, and you just find you, there's nothing. There is no such thing as the Christian life without community. 
How do you abide? You abide in community. How do you abide? You, you abide in Sabbath. If you don't Sabbath, if you don't rest one day in seven, then you're abiding in your work and you're deriving life from your work. You're not deriving life from, from Jesus. And, 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 and for those of us who have the propensity to overwork, that, the, the fruit that is born from overworking is not good fruit. It's horrible fruit. Abiding is achieved by the Word and the Spirit. Just in, in 15.7, if you were here, I would point you to the wall and I would say, once again, look at the wall and look at the list of the values that we have as a church. One of those values is Word and Spirit together. The Word of God and the Spirit of God working together. In John 15.7, Jesus says, if you remain in me, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. So he's sometimes saying about him abiding in us, and then he says about his words abiding in us. A lot of the pruning and a lot of the abiding and a lot of the growth will come as we engage with the Word of God, as we allow his Word not just to be something that we read, but something that actually we take in and it lives inside us. The Word is, is working in this fruit-bearing process. And if you go back to chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, look at what else abides in us. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he abides with you and will be in you. How do we abide in Jesus? By allowing the Word and the Spirit to abide in us. That's how we abide in Him and how He abides in us. So there is pruning and there is abiding and the outcome is fruiting, which is actually a real word, fruiting, bearing fruit. The purpose of the pruning, the purpose of the abiding is not to make the branch bigger. It's to bring forth fruit. It's not to get more branches. Can I just relieve you of another burden that some Christians hang on themselves when they read this and they read about bearing fruit? They then think that means going and making converts. You know, for me to bear fruit means I have to make converts. I have to go and get more branches. Now, that is not what Jesus is saying here. He is, he is saying that the fruit is the character of God being birthed and being born in our lives. The fruit is a representation of who he is to the world. And if we do that, that will result in more people wanting to follow Jesus. If we just concerned ourselves more with abiding and bearing fruit, we would maybe see more people taking an interest in Christianity than if we went out on the street shouting at them. The fruit Paul talks about in Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace. It's long-suffering and it's goodness and it's gentleness and it's faith and it's meekness and it's self-control. These are all of the things that are brought out of us whenever we abide in the vine. Grape vines bear grapes and fig trees bear figs and apple trees bear apples. And people who are growing attached to the Jesus vine will bear the character of Jesus. And the world will see him in us, individually 
and how we live and act as a community, the world will see him. And that will be far more effective than standing on street corners screaming at people as they do their Saturday morning shopping. The fruit, two things are mentioned in this text and then there's lots of others in other places. Jesus says in in verse 11 about joy, that our joy would be complete, that our joy would be full, and that, that, that his joy would be in us. You know, one of the warning lights in the dashboard of my life is when I feel joyless. When, regardless of whether I'm happy or not, nothing to do with happiness, nothing to do with laughter, it's as if I feel joy is being sucked out of my life, that's a warning sign that I am not abiding. And the other thing that he mentions is love. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Verse 17, this is my command, love each other. The most effective way that we can show the world what Jesus is like is by being a loving community, bearing fruit by loving one another in the church and loving the world. But when they come in, When they see us, they should see a glimpse of heaven. They should see a glimpse of the character of God in how we treat each other. That's why those times on a Sunday morning, and and this is not restricted to Sunday morning, don't misunderstand me, but those times on a Sunday morning when we pour a cup of coffee and sit down together and actually make room to just be together and to, to love one another and to invest in each other's lives, those times are precious. And when people come in and encounter that, they get a wee taste of heaven. They get a wee taste of what God is like. In fact, they maybe even come into the Father's house and see all of those rooms where he is currently dwelling, all loving each other. It's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. And the flip side of that is it's a really, really ugly thing when Christians backbite against one another. It's a really ugly thing when we fail to love when we, when we argue and fight over the most minor, petty, little understandings of doctrine or whatever, that is really dropping the ball. That's bad fruit. God calls us to love one another. Verse 16, and I'm finishing off. <clears throat> I want to tell you what God's will is for your life, just as a wee bonus. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. That's God's will for your life. I appointed you to bear fruit. But God, what job should I have? Doesn't matter. Bear fruit in whatever job you have. God, where should I live? Doesn't matter. Bear fruit wherever you live. I I, I want to take away from you again just a, a misconception Lots of misconceptions that I've tried to, to shift today. But another misconception I think some of us have about God's will for our lives is that he doesn't allow us to make any decisions on our own. God has made us in his image. He has given us so much freedom, so much freedom. And I was trying to explain this to Samuel on, on the other day as we were doing a wee Bible study um, about God's calling on our lives. And I was making the point to him and saying, listen, son, God's calling on your life is not so much about whether you're meant to be a teacher or a doctor or a footballer or a drummer or whatever. That, that is, that's not, that, that's down here. Up here, God's call in your life is that you would bear fruit and you would show the world what he is like. 
if you're a teacher, God's call in your life is to bear fruit and show the people you teach and work with what Jesus is like. If you're a doctor, God's call in your life is to bear fruit as a doctor. If somewhere mid through your career, you change from being one thing to another, don't get yourself all hung up that maybe you're going to step out of God's will. You're not, as long as you're bearing fruit. As long as you're showing the character of God, you're in his will and he gives you freedom to make choices. And if you make a choice and after six months you maybe aren't that happy with the choice you made, it's not God battering you over the head. It's just maybe that that what you're doing now is more difficult than what you used to do or more demanding or you're out of your comfort zone. But the point is, from the God point of view is, I have appointed you to bear fruit. Don't get all hung up about every little decision. If you're making a career change, pray about it. Seek God about it and ask your father who loves you to speak to you about it. Ask your father who loves you to stop you if you're about to make a decision that he doesn't want you to make. But don't get all caught up about every single choice you have to make in life. I'm a school teacher. I might be a school teacher for the rest of my career. I'm quite happy at it, but I might not. I, I, I might teach in a different school. I'd say it's highly unlikely because I love my school and it's the best school in the world. So I really don't think I'll leave it. But if I do, the call in my life, it's, it's, it wouldn't be a case then of, oh goodness, have I stepped out of the will of God? It would be, no, I'm going to be in the will of God and bear fruit in this new context. So it doesn't matter what you do, bear fruit by showing the world what God is like and don't get so slaughtered on the decisions that God has given you complete freedom to make. Complete freedom. Bear fruit in whatever context you are in. And if you're changing contexts, bear fruit in your new context as well. Love one another. Show the world what he is like. Are you connected to the vine? Jesus fought with the religious guys. And he said to them, it doesn't matter anymore that you're descended from Abraham. I am now the true vine. I am Israel. And the issue is, are you connected with me or not? Are you drawing your life from me or not? He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to God. No other way to God apart from abiding in the vine that is Jesus and receiving his life. There is no other way. So you might be a really good person. You might believe a lot of right stuff about Jesus. You might watch YouTube every Sunday morning. You might not do many things that are considered sins or bad things. But I'm telling you, if you're not connected to the vine and receiving his life, you're not part of the people of God. The invitation is there. The door is open. The the grace is offered. The forgiveness that we that we thought about earlier as we, as we drank the fruit of the vine together. It's no coincidence that Jesus used wine to represent his blood. Just think of how that all merges into the vine imagery. Let me pray for you.